When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A relentless, can you feel this? I'm going all in. It's time to cash in. One moment in time, let's get at this. Be tremendous. Relentless, I'm relentless. Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 43. This, as always, is the un-undisputed. This is everything I cannot share with you during the two and a half hour, go for the throat, very live debate show known as Undisputed. On today's show, I'm about to make an announcement about how I'm now reacting to this year's Dallas Cowboys. And I will also take you inside my running daily battle with my partner, Shannon Sharp, over Baker Mayfield. I will also tell you why I do not hate LeBron James, much to your chagrin, no doubt. But I will take issue in this episode with what LeBron said a week ago about Jerry Jones in that 1957 photo that Jerry appeared in. As always, I will answer your questions, including one this week about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. First off today, I do have an announcement to make concerning my 9-3 Dallas Cowboys. 9-3 Dallas Cowboys. With this team, I am officially out of the jinx business once and for all. As you know, I have lived in the past in fear of jinxing my team by guaranteeing victories or by maybe opening a text during a game from a friend that somehow jinxes that game because that text says, we got this one. You know all my jinx factors, wearing the wrong jersey at the wrong time, on the wrong day, watching the wrong game on the wrong TV. I have two in my little studio that I watch games in, my little study. In the past, I've jinxed games by watching them in the wrong chair, while eating the wrong thing, drinking the wrong thing, maybe having my little Maltese Hazel in my lap or out of the room, jinx, 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 or having my wife Ernestine open the door at the wrong time or say the wrong thing at the wrong time, or jinx, 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 jinx. 
I lived in fear, but all that stress, all that angst, all that torment is officially dead because my team is so alive. Jinxes no longer apply to my team this year because it is the realest of deals. It is a true, legit Super Bowl contender. My team is going to beat the Philadelphia Eagles at Jerry World on Christmas Eve or Christmas get even, as I call it, because my team is going to get even for the game we lost with our backup quarterback at Philadelphia. My team is going to get to 12 and 3 by beating those Eagles. And it is at least going to get to the NFC Championship game for the first time in 27 years. I repeat, 27 long, hard years. I guarantee it. Jinxes be damned. My team is just that damn good. Nothing I say, nothing I can do, will doom the fate of the 2022 Dallas Cowboys. They're just too loaded with star power and firepower. This week, the Football Power Index gave my Dallas Cowboys the best percentage chance of getting to the Super Bowl, that's 49%, and of winning the Super Bowl, that's 29%. That's the best in the NFL. I was pleasantly surprised by this, but for once, I was not scared. In the past, I would have said, okay, that's it. We're doomed. Sky's about to fall on my team because of that. Not this year. This week, most of the NFL power rankings had the Eagles number one, but had my Cowboys number two. Can you believe that? The NFC least has number one in most all the power rankings and number two, my Dallas Cowboys, in most all the power rankings. The top two teams in football are from the NFC beast. Yet I believe that my Cowboys are just a little bit better than the Eagles, mostly because we have 11 from heaven, my oh Micah. And they don't, and they know they don't. We have Micah Parsons, and they don't. They do have Jalen Hurts. He's the runaway MVP so far. I've been saying that for a month. And by the way, I predicted the, the very moment on Twitter that the Eagles stole Jalen Hurts in the second round, that he would change life in Philadelphia, and he has. He's changed the culture with his leadership and his playmaking and his winners and ballers game breakers intangibles. But his offense is not more explosive than mine can be and will be. His team is not more explosive than mine can be and my team will be. My Cowboys exploded all over the Chicago Bears and they exploded all over the Vikings up in Minneapolis and they exploded all over the Colts last Sunday night. My team did actually explode on Green Bay at Green Bay, led 28-14 to 14 after three quarters. Should have won that game over Aaron Bleep and Rodgers and company, 42-21, to 21, but you know what happened. Dak and company did have the ball four more times in the fourth quarter in overtime and scored no more points. Does that concern me? Well, sure it does. 
but my defense is just as sack attack explosive as my offense. In fact, my defense this year can actually be as much as an offense as my offense. And I've, uh, I've said from the start of the season, my Cowboys will ultimately go as far as my O Micah and this defense carries my team, which will be all the way to the NFC championship game. At the very least, you can book that. I am officially washing away any potential jinxes in all my sinkses at my house. All of them. I'm washing them right down the sink. You can book it. And please, you can retire that tired old notion that what can go wrong with my Cowboys will go wrong. That's Jerry's law, I guess. But the past is past. Painful history is exactly that. It is literally history. It is over and it is done. The self-destruction of previous Cowboy teams will have absolutely no impact on this one. This one knows it's too good to get psychologically tripped up in tripping itself up. Not going to happen, not this year. This team knows how to get out of and stay out of its own way. And trust me, this is not that I, I believe or I'm seeing it all just with my cowboy love and heart at the expense of my head. Nope, I am evaluating this team strictly with my head this time. My football instincts, my weekly eye test are telling me, or shouting at me, or screaming at me that this team is just too good. C.D. Lamb has emerged as a top 10 receiver and gets better by the snap. Tony Pollard, keep sleeping on him if you want to. He's just emerged as a star running back without a star's name or star's brand or star's face or star's quotes. He's just a star. Tyler Smith, rookie left tackle, is a godsend and very soon will be moved inside to left guard as Tyron Smith, the first ballot Hall of Famer, returns at left tackle, and all of a sudden, you want to talk about NFC beast? That'll be my offensive line. It will be the best in football in short order once again. Am I worried about please drop the Mike McCarthy, or as I call him, Mike McPenalty? Worried about him getting in the way? Well, sure I am. But this team is powerful enough to win in spite of Mike McPenalty, at, at least to ignore him, which is pretty easily done. This team is, is actually coached spectacularly by its two coordinators. I'm talking about Dan the Man Quinn on defense and Kellen more, more, more on offense. Am I worried about our famously infamous owner slash general manager, our owner and operator, Jerry Jones, in his runaway ego, in his suspect football knowledge, mucking it up? Well, sure I am. But this team just seems to roll its eyes at Coach Jerry and go right on winning in spite of him. Was I hoping 
maybe against hope, that Odell Beckham Jr. would become the Super Bowl catalyst for my Dallas Cowboys that he was for last year's Los Angeles Rams? Well, sure I was. Seems a little doubtful at this point, but even if we don't land Odell, even if we don't land OBJ, does that mean that my team is RIP or DOA or SOS? No, not these Cowboys. No, we'll be just fine without him. Am I a little worried about Dak Prescott? Here today, gone tomorrow, Dak, those kind of performance? Well, sure I am. But the defense will pick him up and have his back when it matters most. And when Dak is right, which is frequently, he can be even better than Jalen Hurts. You know it, and I know it. And he will be on Christmas Eve. I say Merry Early Christmas, Cowboy Nation. There's no more fretting. There's no more sweating. There's no more jinxing. Just sit back and behold and savor. You're going to have a very happy new year, as in NFC championship game in January. I guarantee it. Now to your questions. This is Jerome from Michigan who asks, what did you get for your birthday this year? Appreciate that. I had a great birthday, thanks in large part to my wife, Ernestine. It was a long day, December 4th, because it was a big work day, Sunday, NFL day. But first of all, the very good people here at Fox shocked me pleasantly by giving me Jordan 11s, the newest, the Varsity Reds that haven't even dropped yet, but somebody upstairs up here at Fox, to my right or to my left, somebody pulled some strings and landed those Varsity Reds even before they dropped and dropped them right into my lap. And then my wife, Ernestine, got me the new Jordan 12s, the new black taxis, which she bought the day they did drop and dropped them right into my lap in a big surprise to me. I will wear my varsity reds this Friday. I will wear my new black taxis a week from this Friday, along with my Wayne chain and my all black on Undisputed. Now, I know you're probably saying I have way too many Jordans, but I consider the phrase too many Jordans an oxymoron because you can't have too many Jordans. I, I literally wear Jordans every single day of my life, casually or not casually, because as you know, I wear them every day on air. I wear them every day to work. MJ is the shoe goat. MJ is obviously the basketball goat, and it ain't even close, LeBron. Now, two more questions from you, combined, hand in hand. The first is from Jackson from New Mexico. What is your favorite holiday tradition? Followed by this question from Tyler from New Haven, Connecticut. Is Die Hard 
a Christmas movie? Hmm. First question. My favorite holiday tradition with my wife, Ernestine, and my quote-unquote daughter, Hazel, is watching four Christmas movies in no particular order. Number one, any of the Scrooge movies, but my favorite is from all the way back in 1938. I don't know if you know it, but you should. It's A Christmas Carol starring Reginald Owen as Ebenezer Scrooge. And by the way, I think I identify with this classic Charles Dickens tale because I have some Scrooge in me. Maybe a lot of Scrooge in me if you ask my wife, Ernestine. I do like to think I have a big heart as Scrooge was made to discover in himself by the ghosts who of course showed him what a hell on earth his, his life was about to become. In fact, Ernestine is, is actually to me what Scrooge's dead partner, Jacob Marley, is to him in A Christmas Carol. She, she effectively, on almost a daily basis, drags her chains across our floors, as Marley's ghost does in the movie, trying to, to make me realize, make me stop, make me understand that I'm just working way too hard, too relentlessly hard, constantly doing shows on holidays, as we did on Thanksgiving, and I'm rarely stopping to smell the flowers, which I'm mostly let die around me by lack of watering. So I will watch the 1938 A Christmas Carol, and maybe once again, I will wake up for the new year. Number two, Home Alone. What mother-son heart that movie has. Parts of it make me tear up every single time. What a heart-tugging scene the, the church scene is. Yet then, what hilarity ensues when the sun goes down and the wet bandits attempt to rob the home where Kevin is alone. I must admit, last Christmas, <laughs> we did fast forward to the Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern scenes versus Macaulay Culkin. They're, they're just so all-time clever. They're so cartoonishly, but believably funny. I mean, Pesci with his hair on fire is, is top five for me all-time comedic moments. Thank you, John Hughes, for that movie. May you rest in peace. And by the way, Home Alone 2 is one sequel that lives up to the original. Number three on our Christmas watch list is Christmas Vacation. Thank you again, John Hughes. It is not easy to make me laugh out loud. Trust me on that. And that movie has at least five, for me, laugh-out-louds. 
mean, Chevy Chase snowboarding down the hill at warp speed is one, and the, the squirrel and the Christmas tree is another. Ernestine and I both just howl every year and fall off the couch. Another movie with a huge Christmas heart, big belly laughs. Thank you, John Hughes. And last but not least, Die Hard. which definitely, no questions asked, is a Christmas movie. I'm sure you know Die Hard. I'm sure you know how New York cop John McClane, played, of course, by Bruce Willis, has come to L.A. to celebrate Christmas with his wife and his kids who have moved to L.A. so that Holly, the wife, can pursue her career. So John goes straight from the airport to the firm's Christmas party, Nakatomi Plaza, which is the Fox Tower, not far from here. I can see it out my window from where I live. And as you probably know, Hans Gruber, his gang of bad guys, crashed that party. By the way, Hans Gruber, played by the late, great Alan Rickman, is at least in my top 10 all-time villains. And that scene, after John McClane kills one of the bad guys, puts a Santa hat on him, writes on his sweatshirt, now I have a machine gun, ho, 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 as Hans says, sends it right down the elevator to Hans and the thugs. I, I stand and applaud every single time. I know every line in Die Hard, and it's getting to the point where Ernestine won't watch it with me anymore because I say the line before the character does. Shoot the class, shoot the class. Hey, Sergeant Art Powell, Argyle the driver. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. Yes, Die Hard is a Christmas classic of a movie with a very happy ending. Now, indulge me this. Forgive me this. One final salvo from me. One final salvo from me about Baker Mayfield. Maybe you get tired of my man Shannon Sharp and I doing battle over Baker Mayfield, but we don't get tired of it. Trust me on that. We have never, ever disagreed more passionately, and dare I say more personally, about a topic than this one, and sometimes more angrily. Yeah, I'll admit it, you probably know it, but a couple of weeks back, Shannon and I both lost our tempers at each other over Baker Mayfield. Listen, if you are legitimately and authentically engaging in real live debate over sports topics for two and a half hours a day, five days a week on live TV, unscripted live debate, we're not on tape, we are live. No cursor, we are live. No editing, we are live. If you're going to do that, 
tempers are occasionally going to flare, if not explode. And they exploded that day. Talked to Ernestine right after the show. She said, hey, that was out of bounds. That was unwatchable. I said, I got it. I know it. It exploded all over the internet. What the hell just happened? Look, you're talking about two war horses here. Shannon Sharp, great Denver Bronco, great Baltimore Raven, Hall of Famer. Some people do refer to me as the godfather of debate. We're two uh, very proud, extremely proud, overly proud humans. And that pride is on the line every day on live national TV. We're just going to get mad at each other every once in a while. But the beauty, the saving grace of my relationship with my man Shannon Sharp is that we do have so much respect for each other. And we both so believe in, so love this show that we do that we are always, always able to let it go during the commercial break and dive fresh into the next topic as if nothing just happened. I told Shannon from day one working with him six years and three months ago, I said, hey, you have to learn to let it go or we won't have a show. I don't take anything Shannon says to me personally and I definitely don't take it home with me. Never ever do I take it home with me. Now back to Baker Baker commercial maker, as in Mayfield. One more time, before that draft, I said I would take Baker Mayfield number one overall. Not because he won the Heisman at the school I grew up loving in Oklahoma City, which is the University of Oklahoma. Trust me on this, I had no use for Heisman winners Jason White. I had even less use for Sam Bradford, another Heisman winner before his draft. I said, no, 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 don't take him high. He won't stay healthy. He never stayed healthy at OU. And the Rams took him and gave him $50 million guaranteed dollars. And it was a big mistake, as I first guessed. But I did prefer Baker over Sam Darnold because of Baker's leadership charisma, his moxie, his sort of F.U. cockiness, his playmaking flair, just his overall spirit and his spark. And Shannon, like just about everyone else, favored USC golden boy Sam Darnold. I went on record before the draft and I said, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen will fail in the NFL. I said it before the draft. And I have been right about that. And by the way, just quickly for the record, I did watch Josh Allen play one game at Wyoming. It was at Iowa. He was, I guess, predictably thoroughly unimpressive because he was just overmatched, he and his team. But I didn't see much poise or command of the position in a very small and obviously misleading sample size. So I did not see that coming. Lamar Jackson, I watched a lot at Louisville, and I loved him. I loved his football character. What a gamer. What a baller he is. But nobody, including me, 
was exactly sure about if he could win NFL games from the pocket, which he obviously can because all he was was the MVP of this league two years ago. Did Baltimore ever get that one right? And I did not see that one coming. Yet here was the undisputed, if you will, point about all of the above. Shannon never said before the draft that Baker would be a bust. And when Baker started lighting it up in the NFL in his rookie year, winning seven games for a team that went 0-16 the year before, by the way, finishing second that year in rookie of the year, Shannon pretty much hijacked my Baker bandwagon, started driving it on our show, saying, shake and bake, baby as in Baker. So in Baker's second year, as you know, the Browns landed Odell, and for whatever reason, it just didn't work. Odell and Baker loved each other. Trust me, I, I, I've got great intel on this. They socialized together, they vacationed together, but they never clicked on the football field, and all of a sudden, Baker's supporters had to fight with Odell's supporters about whose fault it was, back and forth it went. Yet in year number three for Baker, after Odell unfortunately went down and out, Baker took off again, went 11-5, and five. won the first playoff game for the Cleveland Browns since 1994 at Pittsburgh against their arch rival. Baker had a QBR of 91, that scale of 0 to 100. That is extraordinary for a first playoff game. After Odell went down at Cincinnati, Baker and company went on an 8-3 and three run to close that season. And in that span, he threw 20 touchdown passes to only three interceptions. And pro football focus graded him the fourth best quarterback in that stretch in the National Football League. And during those 11 weeks, Shannon Sharp was very quiet on Undisputed. Not once did he call Baker trash. Not once. So now Shannon wants me to publicly admit that I was wrong about Baker Mayfield, and I will not, and I should not, because Baker Mayfield was sensational as a rookie, and he was sensational in 2020. He did that in the NFL. He was not a bust. He was not trash. He proved he was way better than Sam Darnold has ever been in this league. Then he wound up going to Carolina, as you know, and he beat out Sam Darnold head-to-head to win the Panthers' job to start this current football season. So I was not wrong about Baker Mayfield. If, if you hate Baker because of those smug, smarmy, progressive commercials he did at home with Baker Mayfield, I, I get it. I respect it. I, I have said from the start, all those commercials, those in the Nissan Heisman house, going to be Baker's downfall, painted a bigger and bigger target on his back that he could not live up to, not yet. And again, if you just hate Baker because you needed a scapegoat for Odell's injury plague decline in Cleveland, I, I can live with that. But I cannot and will not live and let live with Shannon Sharp demanding 
did I say I was wrong about Baker Mayfield. Baker tore his labrum, fractured his left shoulder in game number two of the 2021 season, and he tried unsuccessfully to play through all that, and he could not, and he should not have even tried. Then he tried to embrace going to a team that was ranked dead last in the, the last offseason power rankings. Dead last were the Carolina Panthers. I said on Undisputed, he's got to win his first game against his ex-team at Carolina. And he all but did that. He threw for 155 yards just in the fourth quarter. That's pretty good in the National Football League. 155 in the fourth quarter and brought them all the way back to a 24-23 lead over said Browns. Then the Panthers got robbed and jobbed by two terrible non-calls. And they ended up losing on a 58-yard field goal. And then they went up to New York the next week and they lost on a 54-yard field goal, a game in which Baker played well enough to win against the suddenly hot New York football giants. After that, you got me. Baker started to lose confidence, got hurt again. Then he came back for one game. They threw him right back into the fire at Baltimore against the red and white hot, I mean, red, white, and blue hot Baltimore Ravens at Baltimore in high winds. And, and yet Baker hung in and hit Terrace Marshall right in the hands with a touchdown pass, middle of the fourth quarter. That would have made it 10 to 3 Carolina. And Terrace Marshall dropped it. We've shown the tape again and again on Undisputed. Bad luck, bad karma. Wrong place, wrong time. It, 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 it was just bad on bad on bad. It just didn't work for Baker in Carolina. And yeah, I'll give you this. It certainly turned out to be a trash year for Baker. But he has proven for long stretches of his career that he can play at a high level in the National Football League. And now we'll see if he can click with the Sean McVay who has a lot of Baker in him, or maybe it's vice versa. Maybe Baker has a lot of Sean McVay in him. They're both cocky front runners in their own ways, and maybe it'll be a much better click for Baker. We will see about that. But the point is, I will not back down. I will not back off. The essence of surviving and thriving, doing live, unscripted national TV debate, real, live, go-for-the-throat debate, is having the courage of your convictions. And trust me, it's not easy. I've told you before, I, I was blessed to learn football from the great Bill Walsh and Don Shula and Tom Landry and, of course, Jimmy Johnson. I've trained myself. I've forged myself to trust only my instincts and stick with them. They have served me well again and again and again. I was not wrong about Baker as, as much as you might hate him or hate me for saying this, but I just don't go down easily in more ways than one. Back in my ESPN days, our moderator Jay Crawford used to call me never flip skip. 
because I was refused to change my predictions even when it looked like I was in perilous danger of being wrong. So a couple of weeks back on Undisputed, we revisited our preseason Super Bowl predictions and we each were given the opportunity to repick. Shannon had Rams over Chargers to start the season. Obviously, both teams have been wrecked by injuries in various different ways. So he changed to 49ers over Ravens in his repick. Before the year, I had Bucks over Bengals, and I did not change. I just don't flip. I hung in with the Bengals, and suddenly, certainly starting last Sunday, they're, they're actually looking like last year's Bengals. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not riding off the Bucks just yet. I know it doesn't look good. You might say it looks completely over as in bleak. But as long as they have that guy at quarterback, I am not backing off or giving up just yet. That's the one guy in sports I do not bet against, that guy who plays quarterback for Tampa Bay. That guy, over my six years with Shannon Sharp, has won me far more debates than anybody else in the world of sports because again and again and again, Shannon has made the mistake of betting against that guy. Back to your questions. This is Corey from LA. Do you ever get nervous or anxious before undisputed? That, Corey, is a great question that I have never ever been asked. No on the nerves, yes on anxious, or maybe I should say amped is the better word. First, nervous. If you followed my career for 15 odd years, I did live TV as you might say a part-time job. I made weekly appearances on various ESPN shows, Monday Night Countdown, Sports Reporters, the old old school, new schools that I used to do on Sundays with my man Stephen A. Smith, used to do Jim Rome show. I even did, believe it or not, <laughs> I did live debates after rounds at major golf tournaments on the Golf Channel. I did all of the above, but it was all spot duty. And yes, I always got nervous for all of those appearances because there were no tomorrows. I couldn't come right back the next day and right the wrong. I, I couldn't come back the next day and correct what I felt like I screwed up. I couldn't come back the next day and say, I'll be better because there was no next day. These were all one-shot deals until the next week or maybe the next month. So I always vowed to myself, if I ever have the chance, I want to do daily television. And starting in 2004, that's exactly what I did on Cold Pizza First, then First Take Up in Bristol, Connecticut, and now on Undisputed. Now I do two and a half hours, five days a week. Now I'm working with Shannon Sharp for, what are we up to, six years and three months. So I built, I, I'd have to say, I'd like to think, 
pretty good rapport with him, pretty good trust level with him. So I don't get butterflies in the stomach sort of nervous before shows because they're just too relentless. They just keep coming and coming and coming every single day. But I always do get anxious as in amped, always. And I do drink 20 fluid ounces of Diet Mountain Dew before every show. So I do ingest that caffeine jolt. I do still need a seat belt during what we call the A block, the opening block of Undisputed every single day because I get overamped, I get overexcited, I get over anxious to do battle with Shannon Sharp, to school Shannon Sharp, to win every debate from Shannon Sharp. This is D from California who asks, do you root for LeBron and the Lakers to lose when you watch them? That's another intriguing question. Complex answer. Obviously, I root against the Lakers when Shannon and I have bet cases of Diet Mountain Dew on that game, as we often do. And obviously, I, I almost subconsciously root against LeBron just so I don't have to go sit out there at that debate desk the next morning and hear LaShannon Sharp say, see, I told you, he's the GOAT. We all know he is not the GOAT. He is nothing more than the phony GOAT, period, end of story. But I do get sick and tired of having to go out there and hear that after LeBron has one rare hot shooting night. But in all honesty, I do love talking about, debating about LeBron and the Lakers. They rival my Cowboys as the most intriguing team in all of sports because LeBron is easily the most interesting man in all of sports. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Every single night, it's something new with him, some sideshow backstory subplot. It's always something with LeBron. So obviously, I, I want the Lakers to win enough to remain relevant. It's like Tech Schramm, the founder of the Dallas Cowboys, used to say to me, the East Coast media wants to see us lose, but they don't want us to go away. Because last year, the Lakers went away. They even missed the play-in tournament, and I'm here to tell you, in all candor, it did not help our ratings. Which brings me to a recent game that the Lakers won at Milwaukee, a statement victory by LeBron and AD and the Lakers over Giannis and company. So I'm live tweeting during the game as always. I'm riveted every Laker game. I, I don't miss a dribble. And LeBron, as you probably remember, passed Magic on the all-time assist list during that game. And I immediately tweeted, as I have about 10,000 times, at least I've said or tweeted that on air or on my, my Twitter timeline. I said, LeBron, this is the quote, LeBron James, all caps, still 
is the best passer in basketball. I, I didn't even think twice about it because I've said it so often, yet next morning, Ernestine says to me, she gets all the Google alerts that, that tell her what's sort of going on out there in internet land in response to me. I don't follow any of it, but she sort of keeps me apprised in general when my name is mentioned. And she said, my God, I'm getting so many Google alerts, bloggers, websites. They're all saying that your Twitter account must have been hacked because of what you tweeted about LeBron is still the best passer. And I'm like, what? It, it was like nobody could believe I said something nice about LeBron. Yet I always say, I, I've said it 10,000 times that LeBron has the highest IQ in basketball and that he's the greatest driver of the basketball I have ever seen because he weighs like 260 pounds at six feet, nine inches tall, and he is ambidextrous at the rim because he's born left-handed and plays right-handed so he can go both-handed. He's the eighth wonder of the world driving the basketball. I, I've said this again and again and again. But nobody wants to hear that because that's no fun coming from me. The blind witnesses, as I call the LeBron idolaters out there, they don't want to hear that from me because it spoils their party. That's not fair coming from me. That's not fun coming from me because that makes me less hateable. And LeBron lovers, as we all know, only want to hate me. I'm sorry, I, I hate to spoil this party, but I do not hate LeBron James. From my heart, I don't hate him. In fact, I, I hate the misconception that I hate LeBron James. I just tell the truth about LeBron James, and oftentimes it's truth that nobody else will tell. It's obvious, painful truth to me. More than ever, LeBron James runs from the late-game free-throw line. He did it in the game at Milwaukee, the signature statement game. He was running from the late-game free-throw line, hot-potatoing the ball to Russell Westbrook, who's also a disaster at the late-game free-throw line, and Russ missed both of his. But LeBron is so shaky-handed at clutch late-game free-throws because, no, he does not have the clutch gene. I know he's hit two or three walk-off shots over 20 years of playoff run, 20 years of regular season. I mean, every once in a while, he's going to hit one. But now it's to the point that LeBron doesn't even have the closer gene. I, I said last year there were 15 games that I counted that he should have closed. Just home, James. Just take him home. Use the highest IQ. Use your ability to drive the basketball. Have the guts to go up there and try to make one of two free throws. It's, it's easily done when you're LeBron bleeping James. Yet, recently, he, he allowed his team to blow a 17-point fourth-quarter lead at home to Indiana. I couldn't believe my eyes. And then at Cleveland the other night, 
Cleveland, where he owns that, that arena in a game begging for him to win it. Begging. Game that was tied with eight minutes to go. LeBron James scored zero points in the fourth quarter, took one shot, one shot, one three, which is the worst case scenario for him, and of course missed it. As Donovan Mitchell scored 17 in the fourth quarter to lead Cleveland to a 14-point late blowout of a win. A game that was tied with eight minutes left. And Cleveland won by 14, and LeBron scored. Not, that, that's impossibly bad. That's so not Jordan-esque. Choke City, LeBron. Now, are you LeBron lovers happier with me for saying what I just said? Okay. You're welcome. Okay. One more topic. Suffer me this. As you know, last week Undisputed was preempted. It was Tuesday through Friday by World Cup games on FS1. Love the World Cup on Fox. So, with Thanksgiving and then the preempting, there was no Skip Bayless show for the last couple of weeks. This show has become my companion platform to Undisputed. This is the platform upon which I'm allowed to comment the way I know I can in such depth that I can't do on Undisputed and I definitely cannot do on Twitter because it's just too dangerous to try to be in depth in so few a words and characters so easily misinterpreted, so easily misunderstood on Twitter, so I don't even try. So again, forgive me for being a little late on this, but I do want to comment on what LeBron James did say a couple of weeks back now about that 1957 picture of Jerry Jones at age 14 among those white students at North Little Rock High School denying access to six black students who were enrolled at the school. After a home win over Portland, this was on November 30th, at the end of LeBron's group media session after that win over Portland, LeBron said, and I quote, I got one question for you guys before you guys leave. I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones photo. But when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. Period, close quotes. Now, LeBron did also add, me personally, I don't condone any hate to any kind, to any race, to Jewish communities, to black communities, to Asian communities. You guys know where I stand. And LeBron did go on to say, I believe Kyrie caused some harm to a lot of people, and he has since apologized. But he caused some harm, and I think it's unfortunate, period, close quote, said LeBron James on that night of November 30th. So, as I've said many times on Undisputed, 
LeBron is in the GOAT conversation when it comes to having the courage and the wisdom to speak out on social and racial issues. When LeBron speaks, I listen closely because it always carries such weight to my ears. I mean, to me, he's up there in social racial commentary with all the greats, with Muhammad Ali and Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. LeBron, not in the on-court GOAT conversation, but definitely in the off-the-court conversation, if not vying for the top. But this was the first time that LeBron James actually left me wondering exactly what his message was that night. For once, he opened the door, but he did not walk boldly through that door. He broached the subject, and then he dropped the mic. For once, I, I'm still not completely sure what his point was. Maybe that's my fault, but I'm still not sure. So step back from this just for a moment with me. That picture of Jerry resurfaced because the Washington Post had, had asked every NFL owner for an interview about why there are so few black head coaches in the NFL. And only Jerry agreed to do that kind of interview. Now, within that interview, he was grilled about that 1957 photo, a photo that, just for the record, has run before in other publications. I believe I first saw it in the New York Times, and I'm pretty sure I brought it up during a discussion on first take. This, this is maybe 12, 13 years ago. And I definitely made the case on air that that photo was a very bad look for Jerry Jones. So Jerry's explanation to the Washington Post was that at age 14, he was just curious just observing instead of actually participating in that his football coach at that point had warned all the players, if not ordered all the players, to, to stay away from any potential confrontations that might arise the next day. And why hasn't Jerry ever hired a black head coach? Well, Jerry did tell the Washington Post he was preparing to hire the great Denny Green, because he'd gotten to know him through their work together on the competition committee, but that Jerry suddenly realized that Bill Parcells had become available and was interested in the cowboy job, and Jerry went with Bill Parcells. But Jerry did admit that as the most powerful of NFL owners, that he could have and certainly should have done far more, considerably more, to make possible the hiring of more black head coaches. So when that Washington Post story and that accompanying picture did hit the internet, again, I was off for those days, it did appear to me, maybe this is from a distance, that it flat out exploded all over the internet. I, I didn't actually keep score here, maybe it's subjective, but it seemed like many, many commentators, black, white, 
all colors, weighed in and took stands. And I'm pretty sure that Jerry Jones' image and reputation mostly took a hit. Most of the commentary I read or heard condemned said photo and condemned Jerry for never having hired a blackhead coach and for allowing this league that he all but runs to be so glaringly wrong when it comes to hiring blackhead coaches. So to me, the Washington Post story spread like internet wildfire. It was the hottest story to me in sports for, I don't know what, 24 to 48 hours. And I just do not see how you could conclude that it was ignored or glossed over or quickly swept under the media carpet controlled mostly by a majority white media of commentators and reporters. This is just my experience, my point of view, a majority, maybe a vast majority of the majority white media do not like Jerry Jones. That's my experience and are quick to condemn him for just about anything he does or says in or out of football. Jerry has become the most famous and the most infamous owner in sports history. I believe he's even eclipsed George Steinbrenner, the, the late Yankees owner, as the most criticized owner ever. I, I think it's now not even close certainly is the easiest target now in sports history. And just for the record, even as a lifelong diehard Cowboy fan, as well as a media commentator, I have often criticized Jerry on Undisputed. I, I don't know if you kept score, but often, 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 often saying that the Cowboys are going to have to win in spite of general manager Jerry Jones and his suspect football knowledge and his runaway ego, all of which I just mentioned in this podcast. I mean, how can I even begin to defend an owner slash GM who's presided over a team known as America's team that hasn't even been back to an NFC championship game in 27 years? I can't and I won't. Now back to LeBron in the bombshell he dropped on those reporters after that Portland game. Why hadn't they asked LeBron about that 1957 Jerry photo? Well, in perspective, LeBron obviously plays in the NBA, not in the NFL, and it was obviously more apropos to ask LeBron about the Kyrie suspension, in part because LeBron did win a championship with Kyrie. Not to mention that just about every NBA star was asked about Kyrie and his suspension. Not just the NBA superstar, LeBron James. I think they all were. And now, wait a second. I'm trying to make this compute. LeBron was chastising I guess the white reporters who covered the Lakers, an NBA team, for what? For protecting Jerry Jones? So wasn't that the sort of insinuation that you white reporters 
didn't ask me about Jerry because you were protecting him, but you, you didn't hesitate to ask me about Kyrie when he got suspended for what he did. I, I think that was the direction LeBron was heading. Then again, LeBron used to be a Cowboy fan. LeBron now says that Jerry lost him with the way he, Jerry, handled the Colin Kaepernick issue. Because as we all remember, Jerry ordered his players to stand with heads over their hearts, obviously ignoring Colin Kaepernick's deeper motivation, which was to protest the rampant killing of black men and women by white policemen. I completely understand how that Jerry stance killed LeBron's love, lifelong love, for the Dallas Cowboys. It, it did not help my lifelong love. But when you become a Cowboy fan like I did at age 10, it just becomes virtually impossible to turn off that Cowboy love, which, which took hold of my soul long before I'd ever heard of any Gerald Wayne Jones Jr. sunk roots in in my subconscious long before he ever turned my team, Jerry did, into his team, the most valuable team now in all the world. So in, in the end, Jerry obviously isn't in the racial social justice business. He, he, he's in the what they call big business and big D, a business of making money. That's all the business Jerry's in. So. Now that LeBron is no longer a Cowboy fan, it, it would have been even easier for him to go right to Twitter, right to Instagram, wh wherever he wanted to go, and express his opinion, his criticism of that 1957 Jerry photo. Certainly no one was stopping him from doing that, and his criticism would have been very welcome, even expected, and certainly in the end appreciated. But it seems that that actually taking a stand on whether he considers Jerry Jones a racist was not LeBron's intention. He raised the issue and then dropped that mic. Now, I did read a powerfully insightful commentary on Anscape by Justin Tinsley that made this point. I'm going to quote, white bigotry is often defended as a relic of a bloody but distant past. And if it does come up in conversation, white folks have historically been given passes for their bad acts on accounting of their age and maturity level in a way that never existed for black people. I, I hear that. I, I certainly appreciate that. But now back to the case in point. I'm, I'm still not so sure that the white media gave Jerry a pass for that picture. In fact, I believe that many, if not most people out there, just people in general, people of, of all colors, view Jerry as this sort of typical product of racist Arkansas culture, backwoodsy Arkansas culture. Obviously, children are socialized. They're, they're pretty much taught by their parents to hate. 
whether that was exactly the case with Jerry, I don't know. But I, I do believe that a majority of just a majority of fans in general view Jerry Jones as sort of racist by birth and racist at heart. After all, he was friends with Donald Trump and he was very anti-Kaepernick stance through that highly controversial period when obviously Trump as president was blasting Kaepernick and other NFL players for kneeling. So obviously, Le LeBron had something he wanted to get off his chest about that photo, yet then he pulled his punch, which shocked and, and really disappointed me. Why, why not just unload on Jerry? Why not say exactly what he was thinking, LeBron? Why, why not just say it? Instead, LeBron pretty much did what Kyrie did, which was, as you remember, posted an extremely anti-Semitic link without any explanation as to why. So was LeBron strongly suggesting that Jerry's a racist without having to take full responsibility for, for actually making that accusation? I, I don't know for sure. Was he somewhat fearful of taking on a man as powerful as Jerry Jones? I, I can't imagine that because, hey, we're talking about LeBron James here the most powerful man to me in the NBA, if not one of the most powerful in sports, a man that certainly could stand up to Jerry Jones any day or night. Yet, for sure, just by dropping the mic, Jerry was forced to respond to what LeBron suggested, as if LeBron had accused Jerry of being racist. And, of course, Jerry deflected. He took the high road. He went on and on, spinning out of the question by saying how much he respects LeBron, how he once upon a time tried to get LeBron to play tight end for the Dallas Cowboys. So here's my two cents on the whole issue. Remember, in Jerry's first seven years as the owner of the Cowboys, I spent literally hundreds of hours, hundreds of hours around him for the three books that I did write on the Cowboys. These are hours interviewing him and many, many hours just sort of hanging around with him off camera, sometimes very, very informally. So through the 70s and 80s, I'm here to tell you that I covered a lot of sports, covered a lot of races in the NFL. MLB, even a few in the NBA. So I think I have fairly sensitive radar when it comes to racist behavior or remarks. And I will say this, not once did Jerry Jones ever say or do anything that remotely suggested racism while I was listening or watching, not once. So many of the black players he came to treat like sons. Of course, you can certainly make the case that he loved them, quote unquote, because they could make him rich and famous with their talent on the football field. And you could be very right about that. But not once did I ever hear even an ex-player accuse Jerry Jones of any kind of racism, not even once. 
Jerry did keep my dear friend John Wooten on as his first GM as Jerry was just learning how to do the business. John's a black man, very proud black man, who, by the way, went on to run the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which oversees the Rooney Rule. John, in those days, worked more closely with Jimmy Johnson than he did with Jerry Jones, but, but not once did, did John ever pull me aside and say, hey, you got to watch Jerry here or there about this or about that. And John has alerted me many, many times to white people who are exhibiting racist behavior, many, many times, but not once about Jerry, which brings me to my brother, Lil Wayne, who volunteered to me just last week when all this flared up that he knows and works with many, many NFL players and that not one time has he heard a discouraging word about Jerry Jones when it comes to being racist. Wayne says that all he's ever heard about Jerry is it's just about his benevolence when it comes to the treatment of his black players. His big, good heart, says my brother Lil Wayne. He's told me story after story about how Jerry has helped, maybe even to the point of helping save some lives of players, especially after they're retired, after playing for the Cowboys. Again, Wayne volunteered this to me. And again, I have been very critical of Jerry. He did not love my third and final book on the Cowboys. So I have zero reason to protect him, zero. I do not care if he will ever be a guest on our show. He never has been before. I have no plans to ever have him in the future. Who knows, but I don't have any plans. He, he, he certainly gives me no special treatment. No way do I ever sell out to him or to anything Cowboys. I'm just giving it to you as straight as I know how to give you with no strings attached, which is what I wish Kyrie had done from the start. Not once has Kyrie publicly ever explained why he posted that link to a movie and a book, as you know, that denied the existence of the Holocaust that accuses Jewish leaders over the years of being devil worshipers, that strongly suggests that the Bible is a lie perpetrated on the world by the Jews and the Christians. Only after Kyrie was suspended and was in danger of losing his Nike deal did Kyrie finally say he was sorry and that he is not anti-Semitic. But Nike obviously did not buy his apology because Nike has now officially dropped Kyrie Irving. That's why it disturbs me deeply if LeBron was trying to say, hey, people condemned Kyrie, but not Jerry Jones. It, it deeply disturbs me if this is any attempt to try to turn Kyrie into any kind of sympathetic figure, made to jump through hoops by the NBA in order to be reinstated after being suspended for eight games. No, 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 no. The NBA had to make it look like Kyrie was working his way through a seven-step process in order to quickly rehabilitate his image so the league wasn't pressured 
to drop him the way Nike just did. The league did an amazing job in a very short period of time in making it appear that Kyrie had learned his lesson, had been enlightened, and was ready to move forward and rejoin the Brooklyn Nets. And by the way, Dave Chappelle, in his Saturday Night Live monologue, which I mentioned in a previous podcast, did advise Kanye, as in Ye, to just tell the white people what they want to hear, especially the Jewish white people, in order to, quote-unquote, quote, buy yourself some time. And I wonder if that's actually pretty much what Kyrie did. He's a very smart man, Kyrie. He didn't post that link by mistake. He knew exactly what he was doing, even though maybe the magnitude perhaps escaped him of, of how he was fueling the fire of more potential hate crimes against Jewish people here in America. Kyrie was not the wronged party here. Jewish people were. I'll say it again. If a white star athlete or, let's say, entertainer posted a link to, let's just say, for sake of discussion, a KKK film saying that slavery was actually an exaggeration, then let's say that white star apologized profusely, saying, I do not hate black people. Do you think that within a month or so, that white star could go right back to playing his sport or making his movies or his music? Come on, stop it. That would be the end of that white star's career. You know it and I know it because it should be the end of his career. Now, I guess it's also possible that LeBron was, was defending Kyrie in small part because he would love to reunite with Kyrie next season, which I think is a distinct possibility. Who knows? Maybe LeBron in year 21 with AD, if he could ever stay healthy, and with Kyrie and with the rehabilitated game of Russell Westbrook, sixth man of the year Russell Westbrook, would LeBron maybe be able to make a run at a fifth championship next year? Sure, it's highly possible. So if that was at least in part LeBron's motivation, I understand. But this was the first time in LeBron's illustrious career as a social justice commentator when I'm just not sure what his point was. I, I guess it played great for his fans. Yeah, tell him, LeBron. But tell him exactly what? That Jerry Jones is a racist? That Kyrie was wrongly condemned by the white media? I'm just not sure because, for once, I'm not sure LeBron was sure. That's it for episode 43. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.